In April 1775, as the king's troops advanced on Concord, Massachusetts, Paul Revere would sound the alarm that the British are coming as he rode his horse through the late night streets. The Battle of Concord and its shot heard round the world would mark the unofficial beginning of the colony's war for independence. The following May, the colonies again sent delegates to the Second Continental Congress. For almost a year, the Congress tried to work out its differences with England, again without formally declaring war. By June of 1776, their efforts had become hopeless, and a committee was formed to compose a formal Declaration of Independence. Led by Thomas Jefferson, the committee included John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Philip Livingston, and Roger Sherman. Jefferson was chosen to write the first draft, which was presented to the Congress on June 28. After various changes, a vote was taken late in the afternoon of July 4th. Of the 13 colonies, nine voted in favor, two voted no, and Delaware was undecided and New York abstained. To make it official, John Hancock, the president of the Continental Congress, signed the declaration with a great flourish, so King George can read that without his spectacles, he said. The following day, copies of the declaration were distributed, and the first newspaper to print the declaration was the Pennsylvania Evening Post on July 6th. On July, on July 8, the Declaration had its first public reading in Philadelphia Independence Square. Twice that day, the Declaration was read to cheering crowds and pealing church bells. Even the bell in Independence Hall was rung. What an incredible time in our nation's history that must have been. I mentioned this earlier, and I'll just throw this in for free. I do want to be careful as a Christian to strike a middle ground. Whether you're aware of it or not, there are elements in our country that are going too far to one extreme and making an idol out of our patriotism and out of our liberty and out of our country that moves people to ridiculous actions and extremes. People, I do not want to worship our country. I do not want to make an idol out of our freedom. I do not want to make an idol out of patriotism. Yet on the other hand, I do want to understand that as we look back across the country or across the history of our country, we see times that it seems very clear that God has blessed and God has provided and God has led in our nation and in our history. And we ought to thank God for this country that we live in. However, I want to point out to you this morning that it's possible to be born and live and die in a free country and still to be a slave. There's more to experiencing true freedom than just social or political freedom. The countries in our world that deal with oppression and even uh, the issues that we deal with in our own country, social, political problems that exist here, they are there not just because the right laws have not been passed or because there are people in office who have the wrong ideas, but deep down there is a root issue, there are underlying issues some wonder why we sometimes have to fight for what is right. 
Some wonder where all of these problems come from and why haven't we achieved a utopian existence that humanistic evolutionary theory suggests we would have. You know, you think about that. If, if, if humanistic evolution is true, then by this time, as those theories suggest, after millions of years of evolution, uh, of, of development, we ought to have developed to a point where most of these problems that exist, they should be gone and we should be living in a virtual paradise. Yet we look everywhere around us and see that that's not the case. We live in a world that's full of problems and full of trouble and full of evil and sin and wickedness. You see, in Matthew 15, 11, Jesus said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of him. It's what comes out of his heart. You see, the real underlying issue, the root cause of our individual personal problems and the root cause of the problems in our world and our country that we live in all come from the problem of the heart. That is, it's a sin problem. You see, friends, when America was struggling for its survival and freedom from the tyranny of Great Britain, our founding fathers drafted a declaration of independence and began to fight for their freedoms. When we look at the problem of the human heart and realize that it's possible to have an external freedom where we enjoy liberties that are provided to us because of our Constitution and Bill of Rights and so on and so forth, we can still be personally enslaved. And it may lead us to ask the question, what can we do about the slavery of the human heart? Where does true freedom really come from? What is true freedom? I want to read to you from Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open and follow along. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Now skip down to verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you gain leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy and for the freedom that we have in the great land where we live. But most of all, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus. We could be in the deepest part of communist China, oppressed and uh, under the thumb of a dictatorship or in North Korea or some other place like that, and we could still be enjoying freedom in Christ. Lord, we ask that you'll help us in the furtherance of this service this morning. Father, we pray that your word and your spirit might go forth and speak to hearts the message that each one needs to hear. And Lord, would you show us the secret to real freedom? And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to be really free, truly free, the first thing that you need to do is acknowledge your slavery. Acknowledge your slavery. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 6 says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves or servants, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? I remember hearing the phrase, a solution looking for a problem. Is everybody awake? A solution looking for a problem. You see, this is exactly what the gospel message is to a world that is not yet convinced that they need it. The gospel message, the message of salvation is a solution looking for a problem to those people who are not convinced that they need salvation. This is why the first step to becoming truly free, the first step to receiving the freedom that we can find in Jesus Christ is both to see and acknowledge your slavery. This is very basic to the plan of salvation. When we think, I don't know how many of you have ever said the sinner's prayer. May, some of you, that maybe was the way you were saved the first time, to have said the sinner's prayer. Uh, some of you may have heard something like the ABCs of salvation uh, that uh, goes something like admit, believe, and confess, something like that. And the first step in that is to admit that you're a sinner, to admit that you're a sinner. But before you admit that you're a sinner, you first need to know and believe that you're a sinner. 
You see, a lot, of pro- a lot of people will never receive the cure because they don't believe that they have the disease. A lot of people will never take the medicine because they're not convinced that they're sick. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read these words. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What this is saying is that everyone, even without knowledge of the law of God, without knowledge of the Ten Commandments, has an an innate sense, that means a, a knowledge that we are born with, that some things are right and some things are wrong. Now, now, there are people who will say that they don't believe that, that they believe everything is, you know, everything is situational. There's nothing, there's no absolute morality. There's nothing that's really completely right or completely wrong. It's just, you know, based on a person's feelings. But you take that person who says something like that and you try to take away something that belongs to them and see if they really believe that that's true. No matter what they say, they believe themselves, whether they say it with their words, they believe that, yeah, some things are right and some things are wrong. It's built into us. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, we read these words. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. What's he saying? He's saying that when I became aware of the law of God that said, thou shalt not covet, I also became aware of my own personal guilt in God's eyes. James chapter 4 verse 6 gives us this, that, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if we ever want to receive the grace of salvation, that salvation that brings true freedom from sin, we must first come to the point of humility before God, and that means seeing and acknowledging ourselves as sinners before God. We must acknowledge our slavery. So the question is, how can people be made to see? Most people, the Bible says, and I I believe it's in the Proverbs, people say that every man will declare their own goodness. Nobody wants to admit that they are a sinner. But you see, friends, in spite of however moral we might be, however uh, good we might consider ourselves to be, every one of us is a sinner in God's eyes. We have in some way violated the commandment of God. And in order to see that, what we need to do, whatever, what do you need to do to see your own condition? Well, you look in a mirror. When you get up in the morning and you get out of bed before you go about your day's business, 
now sometimes when I go to Walmart, I'm not convinced that everybody does this, but hopefully most people, you look in the mirror before you leave your house and you see if you are presentable to face the day and the world and the other people, right? You know, maybe you wash your face and comb your hair and give yourself a shave or at least a trim or what have you. Well, how can people be made to see their own slavery? Well, we look into God's law. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 uh, tells us that the law is a schoolmaster, a guardian. In other words, God's law is given to us for our instruction to teach us not only about what God's requirements are, but to show us our own condition. And James chapter 1 says that the law of God is like a mirror, and that if anyone looks in a mirror and then goes his way and forgets what he looks like, that person is foolish and his religion is in vain. This is the person, he says, that says they believe and then don't do anything to change their life or behavior. I don't know how many of you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but Alcoholics Anonymous has their 12-step their program. And do any, any of you know, do you know what the first step is? Some of you do. The first step of AA is this. We admitted we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. And that's why those people that struggle with alcohol or addiction of whatever kind, they can never receive the help that they need to overcome their addiction as long as they are saying, I don't have a problem. I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. Because the first step, they say, is to admit that they're powerless over that problem. And the big book, the book uh, of AA that they use, uh, goes on to say the principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. In other words, they said the whole... The whole uh, mental thought process behind the way AA works grows out of this idea of first recognizing and admitting their powerlessness to deal with their problem. Why this insistence, they ask, and they go on to answer. Few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. In other words, what are they saying? He said, you'll never recover, you'll never get over your addiction to alcohol unless you first see it and admit to it. And friends, the same is true for the sinner who needs the salvation and the freedom that comes in Jesus. There are so many people who have prayed in an altar or somewhere said a sinner's prayer. They have been people who have been presented with the gospel message. Then they were told, you know, if you come to Jesus, it'll, it'll give you a better life and you'll have peace and joy and happiness. And, you know, it'll just it'll kind of put springs on the wagon and help you have a better life. And they've never come to the acceptance of their personal uh, guilt before God. 
And that's the point that they need to see first. And then come to God for salvation through Jesus Christ to see and admit their slavery. Not only that, but we, in order to find true freedom, must be willing to die. We must be willing to die. Now, this is not to say that we can't be free from sin until we physically die. But, well, let's see what Paul says, verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or destroyed so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, when we look back on our past life, on who we were before coming to Jesus, we look at that person as if that person is dead. The old me, the old man, the old lady, whatever, that person that I used to be is a dead person. It is crucified with Christ. Paul here makes this reference to baptism, which was seen as a symbol of burial with Christ. And you see, coming to Jesus means that a death takes place. You may say, well, I thought coming to Jesus meant being born again. And it does mean being born again. But first, there's death. Before resurrection, there's always death. And the old you, the old person that is, that is wrapped around your self-centered heart and nature you need to be willing to see that thing die. You see, we're born with a sinful nature. And when we come to Christ for salvation, we are identifying with Christ's death on the cross. It's not just about receiving new life from Christ. Everybody, you know, that, and it's wonderful. I, I don't want to minimize any of what God does for us in salvation. But it's not just about receiving the new life, the resurrection life in Christ, but it's also about first seeing Jesus hanging on the cross with the nails in his hands and his feet and the crown of thorns on his brow and looking at that picture and saying, that should have been me because of my sin, because of my guilt, identifying ourselves with Christ on the cross. And what happens and what begins in our hearts is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. There are two parts to this. There's initial sanctification that we receive at the moment of the new birth when we are saved. That is, sanctification is a word that means we are separated and set apart away from the old person that we used to be and unto Jesus Christ to be exclusively his property and his possession. <clears throat> I don't know if you know who this is, but I'll tell you in just a minute. In 1775, revolution was in the air in 
the colonies, and only a few months earlier, delegates from the American colonies had held the First Continental Congress and sent to King George III a, a petition for redress of grievances. A lot of things had taken place, the Boston Tea Party, and then because of the Boston Tea Party, a British blockade that stopped goods and services from coming into the colonies. So there was a lot happening and a lot of mounting tension. Amongst the, the tensions that were growing, the Second Virginia Convention convened to discuss strategy in negotiating with the, with the Crown, with King George. There were roughly 120 delegates who filed into Richmond St. John's Church, and they were a veritable who's who of the Virginia's colonial leaders. Among them were present George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, as were five of the six other Virginians who would later sign the Declaration of Independence. Prominent among them was a statesman named Patrick Henry, a well-respected lawyer from Hanover County. Blessed, history tells us, with an unfailing wit and a good speaking voice, Patrick Henry had long held a reputation as one of Virginia's most vociferous opponents of British taxation schemes. Vociferous is a good word, and that just means vocal. As a recent delegate to the Continental Congress, he had sounded the call for colonial solidarity by proclaiming that the distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. He said, I am not a Virginian, I am an American. He was convinced that war was around the corner and he arrived at the, he arrived at the Virginia Convention determined to persuade his fellow delegates to adopt a defensive stance along with that being a willingness to build a militia, uh, an army, if you will, both to provide defense and, if necessary, to go on the offense against uh, the troops from Great Britain. After several delegates had spoken on the issue, Patrick Henry rose from his seat in the third pew and took the floor. A Baptist minister who was watching the proceedings would later describe him as having an unearthly fire burning in his eye. And he began by stating his intention to speak forth my sentiments freely. He said, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, he said, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging of the future but by the past, and judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. You see, there were people in that setting who were arguing against raising a military who are arguing against going to war against Great Britain. And I'm not going to take the time to read his whole, his whole speech, and you're probably not familiar with it except for the last few lines. But what he uh, presented to the people present there that day was the conclusion that we have only one option before us, and that is either slavery or war. And he went on to utter now these infamous words, as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And people, if you ever want to experience true freedom in Jesus Christ, it comes down to this. 
to be willing to so identify with Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that you will die before you go back to being the old person that you used to be. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. To be truly free, you see and acknowledge your slavery. You need to be willing to die. And then third, you live a new life. What good is it to experience freedom if then after experiencing freedom, you just go back and continue living like you always did before you received that freedom? In verse 4 of Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We rise to walk in newness of life. Then 11 through 14, he says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, the sin business is behind you. The sin business is over and done with. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you or no control over you since you are not under law but under grace. In other words, there is a transformation that takes place. He didn't know this, but I already had this in my uh, notes for the purpose of illustration this morning. Maurice mentioned Juneteenth, the celebration that this is a celebration that's gone on for quite some time in various parts of our country, but has only recently been made an official celebration. Juneteenth, short for June 19th, marks the day when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 to take control of the state and to make sure that all of the people who had been slaves were set free. Because there was an element of people there that had not yet acknowledged the Emancipation Proclamation and the victory of the Union over the Confederacy and were still keeping people enslaved. And so troops were sent there to be sure. And it is that day, June 19th, that marks the official end, not the actual end, because there were some places where even after June 19th, people continued to be enslaved. But June 19th marks the official end of slavery in our country. A former slave named Laura Smalley, there's an audio recording that was made of her in 1941 sharing her memories of that day because she was there in, in Galveston, Texas. And she said this, she said, we didn't know where to go. Mom and them didn't know where to go. You see, after freedom broke, they started to turn some of us out, she said, just like you turn out cattle. And she said, we didn't know where to go and what to do. They had been set free. They had been given their freedom, but they weren't sure what to do with their freedom. They weren't sure how to live. But you see, friends, the difference between 
that illustration and the, the person who has received salvation through Jesus Christ and they are beginning to live a new life. The difference there is it's not ignorance, but it's ingrained patterns of behavior. You see, transformation can, can be received one of two ways. Transformation can be received through deliverance. Deliverance, that is, you are, you are set free. But what happens if you are set free and you don't know what to do with your freedom? I, I read a story about a, uh, uh, an ancient Middle Eastern marketplace where one of the merchants there had on display some, I think they were pigeons that he had for sale. And each one of these pigeons had a little string around its neck connected to a, a ring, and that ring was placed over a stake in the ground. So these live pigeons for sale were just marching in a circle around that ring. Well, there was a customer walking through that marketplace, and his heart was touched by these enslaved, imprisoned birds, and he wanted to see them set free. And so he asked the merchant, how much for the birds, how much to buy the pigeons? And the, he was given a price, and so he pulled his money out and paid the price, and then he told the merchant, he said, okay, now set them free. Set them free? Yeah, yes, set them free. That's why I paid you the price, to set them free. So the merchant said, okay, and he went and cut all of the lines, the, the strings attaching those prisons, or those, those pigeons to that stake. But you know what they did? They just continued marching around in a circle around that stake. That man even tried to shoo those birds away to help them realize that they were no longer tied up, they were free, but instead of flying off and flying away, they fluttered and went just a little ways and then landed again and again began to go marching around in a circle. You see, they had an ingrained pattern of behavior that was such a part of who they were that they didn't seem to be able to stop it. So transformation comes through deliverance, yes, but sometimes it comes through renewing our minds. It comes through renewing our minds, and that is we need to learn to replace old patterns of behavior, old thought processes, replace them with new thoughts so that our lives can be transformed. I've heard the stories of the alcoholics and the drug addicts and so on and so forth who when they were saved, they came to Jesus that God delivered them and they will tell their story and say, I never had another desire. I never had an another thirst for the alcohol. I never had another, uh, uh, another Jones for the drugs or whatever. But I've also heard the stories from the people who didn't experience that kind of deliverance. They had to wrestle and they had to struggle with their addiction. I'm not going to go into the reasons why that sometimes happens, other than just to say that God is no less able to set that person free than he is the one that he delivers. God just knows that for some of us, it's better that we wrestle 
with our ingrained pattern so that our thoughts are renewed and our mind is changed and we can actually begin to behave differently. But here's the secret, friends. You'll never change what you're willing to tolerate. You will never change what you're willing to tolerate. As long as you are willing to continue your existence struggling with whatever is keeping you in bondage, you'll never be truly free. I want to close by just telling you a little bit of my personal history. And some of you have heard some of this before, so if for you it's from the Department of Redundancy Department, excuse me. I, uh, like many people that are saved at a young age, I, I, I grew up in a very religious home, a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. I received salvation uh, at a young, young age and always wanted to be a Christian, always wanted to live for the Lord. But at a certain point in my life as a young boy, really, I was exposed to material that I should not have been. And I forgive me, I don't want to make I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable this morning, but I'll just tell you the one thing that I've learned is if you hide something, you'll you'll, you'll not ever get truly free from it. What you keep hidden will keep you enslaved. So this particular area of my life is something that obviously I was ashamed of. I knew it was not right. And so I didn't really talk about it any more than I had to. There were times when I would be put into a position where I was forced to. But I kept it hidden. And I've got to be honest with you and tell you, I don't know how to how to square all of this up uh, doctrinally, theologically. Like, I don't know how to say, you know, you say, preacher, wouldn't you say that during that time from about the age of, I, I'd say about the age of 10, when I was first exposed to, to uh, explicit uh, material that I shouldn't have been looking at, from about that age through up into sometime in my 30s, I, I'm not telling you that it was an ongoing, that it was, that it was always there 100% of the time. I'm just telling you that it was something always there in the back of my mind and in the back of my heart that every once in a while, like, like bait on a hook, would get a hold of me and reel me back in. And I could never seem to completely get over that. And I would pray about it, and I would say, God, forgive me. Would you help me to do better? And still not seem to be able to get free from that. <clears throat> I carried that into my marriage, and it caused great damage both to me and to my relationship with my wife. And I remember I, I, would have, I would have varying degrees of, 
of, uh, of good times. You know, there were times when, like, okay, I'm, you know, I've, I think I've got this problem taken care of, and it's, it, it hasn't bothered me for some time. But like, like mold or like fungus that when you keep it in the dark, it never, it never completely goes away. It just kind of comes back no matter how long, even sometimes over a period of years. There, really, during this time, I pastored a church for about three years' time. And as far as I can remember, I behaved myself during that period of time in regards to this issue. But I'd never fully dealt with it. And I remember after some time, I'd, been, I'd, I'd left the full-time ministry, I'd been out of the pastorate, and, and I remember just kind of struggling with this up-and-down Christian existence. Like, you know what I'm saying? You know what it's like to want to try to be a good Christian, and yet you can't seem to stay on an even keel, you can't seem to stay on top? And I'd just sometimes be back down in the valley and sometimes up and sometimes down. And, and Dr. Avery, he, he's been here preaching for us. He served as a wonderful mentor and advisor to me. And I remember talking with him. And I had not really thought about this other problem for quite some time. And I was meeting with him, asking him, you know, how can I really get to a place of, of enjoying consistent spiritual victory? And through the process of conversation, this came up, this, this bit of immorality that had been a part of my life to a greater or lesser degree at different times. And he asked me a question. He said, have you ever been completely honest about this? And I said, well, I think so. You know, I've talked to different people about it and whatever. He said, does Rachel know about this? And he challenged me and he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, you go and you write out your history with this particular sin. You start from the earliest point that you can remember and you write out in every detail that you can remember up to the present age. And I was working night shift at the time and so there were always times when I had some free time and, and I did that. I started writing and as I wrote... I began to realize that I had deceived myself. In other words, I had told myself a lie so long that I became convinced that it was the truth. I was grading myself on the curve. You know what it means to grade on the curve? You, some people get a little bit higher grade and some people get a little bit lower grade and it brings everybody up to where they pass. They get a passing grade. So what I was doing was looking at my overall life and my overall behavior and, and saying, yeah, there were some times that I was kind of bad, but most of the time I've not been that bad. I've been okay, and so I think I'm okay. But when the Bible talks about immorality, it says, let there not be even a hint of it named amongst you. The standard of God's word for purity is not just mostly pure, but it's all the way pure. She so say, what did you do? And again, I hope not to make anybody too uncomfortable here. If, if, if this bothers you too much, please talk, talk to me or talk to my wife. Um, 
again, went back to Brother Avery and, and talked to him and said, you know, I, this, <laughs> this exercise of writing all of this out, I've seen. No, I've, I'm deceived. I've been lying to myself. Consequently, lying to myself, lying to others. So he said, here's what you do. You go and you make full confession of this to your wife first, then to those who may be in spiritual authority over you. You might say, Pastor, how can, how can this be? I, I can't explain how it can be other than the fact that just I had deceived myself. I had I'd convinced myself that I was okay when I was not. I was an ordained minister at the time, not in the Church of the Nazarene, but in another group. Um, I, I served regularly in church, not intentionally serving or living in a place of sin, but just having deceived myself. So I began the process, full confession, full, full disclosure. It resulted in, in my dear wife needing to get some counseling and, and us together needing some counseling to resolve these issues. And I, I confessed to a number of people who were spiritual authorities in my life. What I did was I took every deep, dirty, dark secret that I had always wanted to keep hidden and I opened it all up for anybody to see that wanted to see now, you don't need to, I'm not, some things you need to keep between yourself and the Lord, but sometimes in order to receive real freedom, you need to open up the doors, open up the windows, and let the light come in. And people, I can tell you, by the grace of God, I have been free ever since. I have not gone back to that kind of sin and that kind of immorality, not one single time. And it's been more than 10 years, well over 10 years since that day. And I'm so grateful today for the freedom that I enjoy in Jesus Christ. I know I've taken a little extra time this morning. Forgive me. Let's stand together. Freedom, wonderful freedom. No more in chains of sin I repine. Jesus the glorious emancipator, now and forever he shall be mine.